we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's not 1 Corinthians. That's, of course, the Declaration of Independence. And with those words began America's love affair with our rights. The king across the pond, of course, was not recognizing our rights, so we took it upon ourselves to set up a government that would secure these rights and these freedoms for us. A bit over 10 years later, we ratified our Constitution, and we quickly amended it with a Bill of Rights. And our history as a nation can be traced along a timeline of increasing rights or increasing freedoms for different groups of people addressing different kinds of concerns. And that love affair, that eagerness to exert our rights continues to this day. And it's not a political thing, right? It's not left versus right. Those two groups disagree on what kinds of freedoms and rights should be emphasized. But both sides are for rights of some kind, right? Environmental rights, gun rights, voting rights, medical rights, animal rights, corporation rights. Even when we can't agree on what the rights and freedoms are, we all think we have rights and freedoms. And they're unalienable. And like our forebears, we are willing to fight to exercise those rights. Now, there's something like that in the text we're going to look at today from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's kind of like Paul's declaration of his rights. And he's going to spend much of the chapter sounding like one of our founding fathers, fighting tooth and nail to establish his freedoms. But we'll quickly discover that the way that Paul views his freedoms and his rights ends up being drastically different from the way that we tend to view our rights, the way that the American vision that we kind of live and breathe. And the difference is no small thing because Paul says that how we view and use our personal rights and freedoms determines whether we actually know Jesus Christ. And I'm wondering if you know that this morning. Do you, do you know that there's a way you must use your rights that's necessary for advancing the gospel and that even indicates whether you believe the gospel itself? In other words, I'm wondering, do you know how to use your rights rightly? Let's go together to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and let's be instructed together from God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now, before we dive in, let me give you a little orientation to this chapter because we're just, we're jumping right into 1 Corinthians. And Paul's instruction here, as in all his letters, is, is part of a, a bigger whole that he's trying to accomplish in his letters. So you may know that Paul planted the church in Corinth. He planted this church. He's their spiritual father. If you go to the book of Acts chapter 18, you can read that story, how he planted this church. But recently, Paul has gotten a letter from this church, and he's, re- he's heard a report about them that things are not going well in Corinth. The, the church has become enamored with certain polished and overly spiritual teachers, And the result is that they're becoming increasingly dismissive towards old, plain-spoken Paul that planted the church. And worse, they're actually drifting from the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. And, And that shift away from the gospel is showing up in all kinds of unhealthy ways, particularly in their lack of holiness and in a lack of love for one another in the body of Christ. So Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians to call them back to that gospel 
and to the holiness and the love that flow from the gospel. So chapter 9, that we're just jumping right into, we're parachuting into today, chapter 9 comes as Paul is calling them to love particularly. In chapter 8, he's been calling them to sacrifice their freedoms as a church, as individuals, to protect weaker brothers in the church, specifically those whose consciences still regarded eating meat sacrificed to idols as participation in idolatry. So in chapter 8, Paul has just said to them, sacrifice your freedom to eat meat for the sake of your brothers. That's Paul's practice. He gives up eating meat when he's around those who would be offended by that, and he's inviting them to do that as well. He's asking them to do that as well. But now in chapter 9, which is where we're going today, we're going to hear that Paul is defending his rights and his practice of giving up his rights. Why is he doing that? Well, as I said, the, the, the Corinthians have become a little disenchanted with Paul. Uh, they, they like these polished and pushy teachers that they've been getting lately. They think that someone like Paul, who claims to be an apostle, ought to exert his authority, not shrink from it. It, it, it would be a sign to them of his strong spirituality if he ate whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, and if he required uh, large amounts of pay for, from them for his services. That's what the other itinerant preachers and philosophers they knew did. But not Paul. He, he, he's out here making tents for a living. So Paul knows that the Corinthians are likely to hear his unwillingness to assert his rights and think, does this guy really have authority? Is he really an apostle? Why is he so wishy-washy if, with his rights and with his freedoms if he's this big shot? So as we dive, as we dive into chapter 9, you'll notice that Paul is in a defensive posture and a very personal posture. He has to defend his apostleship and then he has to explain why he gives up his rights as an apostle and why that's actually a commendable model for them to follow as well. So that's where we are in the book of 1 Corinthians. I know we're just jumping right in but that's kind of the lay of the land. So let's look if you're at 1 Corinthians look at chapter 1 uh, sorry chapter 9 verse 1 and let's Look at Paul's defense of his rights. He says this, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So he begins in these first two verses just by kind of giving us his apostolic credentials. He gives a bunch of rapid-fire questions to which the obvious answer to all of them is yes. Is he free? Yes. Is he an apostle? Yes. Had he seen Jesus, the resurrected Lord, on the road to Damascus? Yes. You can read about it in Acts 9. And that's significant because having seen Jesus in the flesh was one of the requirements for being an apostle. And yes, the Corinthians are themselves the work of, of Paul's commission. He was, apost- he was the apostle to the Gentiles. He had planted this church. He had fathered this church. So if anybody should know that Paul is an apostle, it's these Corinthians. He has the credentials. But then he turns from listing his credentials to affirming the rights he has an, as an apostle. And again, he does this by giving a bunch of rapid-fire questions to which the obvious answer is yes. Look at verse 3. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? 
Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So, of course, Paul has the right to eat any food and any drink. They're all clean for him. And, of course, Paul could get married. It wasn't a problem for any of the other apostles. He points out Cephas. That's just another name for Peter, the great apostle Peter. He was married, as were the earthly half-brothers of Jesus. They were married. And Paul says, hey, I had that right too. And he turns at last to defend his right of compensation. He says, is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So so Barnabas was Paul's earliest missionary companion. And you can read about their work in Acts 13 and 14. And though it was their customary practice to work rather than to accept pay, he says, we're not in a special class of unfunded apostles. We could have accepted pay like the rest. That's just not what we did. And he pauses on that, that last point, this idea of the right to compensation, to further defend and explain it. Because as I said, this was actually a source of contention for the Corinthians. It doesn't make sense to us because we think somebody who donates your time, that's a good thing, right? But for the Corinthians, they saw it as a sign that maybe he wasn't really a valid apostle because he doesn't ask for pay. It, It was so much a source of contention that he deals with it not only here, but in the other letter we have, 2 Corinthians, he has to He has to defend it again. So this is a big source of of tension for them. So he defends it, first by appealing to just the the natural order of things. Look at verse 7. He says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So, So these examples are just common sense, right? He says, soldiers don't go to war on their own dime, right? They're paid by the one who enlists them. The vine dresser, he takes some of the grapes as his own food and drink. A shepherd will take some of the milk from the flock. That just makes sense, right? It just makes sense. And the analogy Paul wants you to see is that apostles and preachers, just like soldiers or farmers or shepherds, they have a right to benefit from their labor. And and it's not just common sense that makes this plain. The Old Testament law testifies to it as well. Look at verses 8 through 12. Paul says this. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share in this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? So Paul says, look, the Old Testament law, it, it commands that gospel ministers should, should be compensated for their work. He quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 25.4, which envisions this big, strong ox pulverizing the grain, right? Treading out the grain with its hooves. And the command is, don't muzzle the ox. Let, let that guy eat as he works, right? That's the idea. He's doing all the work. Let him eat a little bit while he does his work. And Paul says that the, the final aim of this command is not about managing animals, but about managing Christ's kingdom. This is instruction for the church, and the instruction is clear. The one who works in the fields should do so expecting to benefit from it. Paul makes it plain in verse 11. He says, he's labored like a farmer, sowing the good seed of the gospel among them. So it's completely appropriate, it's completely within, it, within his rights to take pay. And it's clear, if you look at verse 12, 
it's pretty clear that there were some other teachers, perhaps even teachers who didn't like Paul, who were requiring compensation. He says, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? So if other teachers had the right to be paid, certainly Paul, the one who planted the church, had more of a right. But Paul tips his hand as to why he doesn't take pay, even as he gives two more defenses of his right. Let's pick it up in the the middle of verse 12. He says this. Nevertheless, we have not made any use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So Paul doesn't exercise his right to pay so that there's no obstacle to the gospel, a theme he's going to return to in just a moment. That's what distinguishes him from other teachers. But then again, he appeals to the Old Testament to to defend his right to pay. He points to the priests who work in the temple. If you remember in your Old Testament, the priests who work in the temple, he notes that, that they got their food from their work. So they facilitated offering the sacrifices, but they also ate some of the sacrifices. Their spiritual work was compensated with physical food. And the final appeal to authority that Paul makes in his defense is the most weighty. He appeals to Jesus himself. During his earthly ministry, Jesus commanded that his disciples should receive compensation when they went out to preach. That's what he says in verse 14. Jesus said, the laborer laborer is worthy of his wages. You can read Jesus give this command in Matthew chapter 10. So Jesus said it, so that should pretty well settle it. So there you have it. That's Paul's defense. He says, I really am an apostle. I really do have the rights of an apostle, especially the right to be paid. And it's not for the reason you think that spiritual gurus are like really expensive, but because that's the natural order of things. The law commands it. The temple service models it. And Jesus himself commanded it. So so the inevitable question that the Corinthians reading this maybe we're thinking and that maybe you're thinking is, so why does Paul give up that right? If, if he spent all this time saying that he has the right to eat what he wants and the right to be paid a decent wage, why doesn't he do it? I mean, good night. He just spent 14 verses arguing like a lawyer that he possesses the right to be paid, but he doesn't exercise the right. Why? Why is he so wishy-washy? Doesn't he have a backbone? Doesn't he ever want to just stand up for himself? What's going on? Well, let's hear his answer. Look at verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will... I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my rights in the gospel. So right off the bat, Paul says in verse 15, the purpose he just gave this defense was not to secure payment. He didn't write that so now the Corinthians would start cutting him a monthly check. <laughs> he says, no, that's, that's not why I wrote it. In fact, he makes this radical statement that he would rather die then let anyone take away his opportunity to glory in the weakness of not being paid. 
And he explains why in verses 16 and 17. And it's, it's a fairly nuanced argument that he makes, and it's bound up with Paul's conversion. So just hang with me as we walk through verses 16 and 17. It's important to remember that when Paul was converted, if you remember Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, he was at the same time called to preach the gospel. Listen, I'm going to read for you from Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 to 16. Listen to how Paul describes his conversion. He says this, When he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. So, so do, you, do you hear that? God revealed his son to Paul, in order that he might preach him among the Gentiles. So for Paul, his, his call to salvation and his call to preach were one in the same. They happened at the same time. They're bound up together. So that's why in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says the fact that he preaches is not in and of itself a reason for him to boast, to glory. Why? Because necessity is laid upon him. Jesus called him specifically to preach. So he pronounces a woe upon himself, saying he should be damned if he doesn't preach Christ. It was what he was uniquely saved to do. It's his necessity. It's his burden. But, but this creates a perception problem for Paul. How does he prove that he's engaged in gospel preaching out of wholehearted devotion to Christ? How does he show that he preaches out of devotion, not just out of duty, since Christ specific, specifically called him to preach? After all, he says, if I joined up willingly, that's my reward. It proves my royalty, my loyalty. But in Paul's case, he's not preaching willingly per se, but because Christ called him specifically and uniquely to preach. It's the stewardship he's been given. So if he has to preach, if he has to preach, how is he going to prove that he wants to preach? The answer, he goes without pay. He forgoes pay. He preaches for free. Paul says he would rather work as a tent maker and provide for himself that way than put an obstacle in the gospel in front of the gospel of Christ. And being able to preach for free actually is his pay. That's what he says in verse 18. He says, what then is my reward? That in preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So, so the fact that Paul can preach the gospel without anyone questioning his motives, that he's doing it for money, or that he's just doing it because that's what Jesus called him to do, is a greater reward to Paul than actually being paid. There's no doubt that he's not doing it out of money, he's not doing it out of sense of duty, he's doing it because he wants to. And it also gives him the freedom to go anywhere at any time and preach the gospel and not have to ask the question, who's going to foot the bill? Paul says, I will foot the bill myself. He's laying down his freedom to be paid, and that actually makes him more free. So that's why he surrenders his right to pay. He makes his motives absolutely above reproach, and it frees him to go anywhere he needs to go. And that leads him then to explain the rest of his so-called wishy-washy willingness to surrender his rights in other areas. Look at verses 19 through 23. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not 
being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So Paul's, Paul's big point here, I think, is not hard to understand. He says he's a, he's a free apostle with various rights, but instead he assumes the posture of a servant toward unbelievers. He adopts their customs. He adopts their preferences and their pattern of life. All of this so that he might win more of them to Christ. To the Jews, he became a Jew. Now, Paul was always ethnically Jewish. That never changed. What Paul means is clarified in the next verse. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. He means that to those Jewish people outside of Christ, still seeing themselves under the Mosaic law, he's happy to accommodate their lifestyles. He's able to observe kosher laws or festival days, for instance. The old covenant was fulfilled in Christ, and now he's under Christ's law, the new covenant, but he willingly embraces the restrictions of the old covenant, the civil and ceremonial aspects, in the presence of his unbelieving kinsmen in order to have an opportunity to win them to Christ. Likewise, Paul says he's also happy to act as one outside the law of Moses to adopt the customs of Gentiles, non-Jews, in order to win them to Christ. Now he does... He makes what might seem to be a confusing caveat in verse 21. He says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That can be confusing, I think. What's, what's he getting at there? Well, Paul wants to make it clear that even though he's not bound by the old covenant law fulfilled in Christ, he's still bound to obey God's law of love as expressed in the new covenant, what he calls the law of Christ. He's still bound to obey God, even though he doesn't obey the prescriptions of the Mosaic law that are ceremonial and that have to do with the government of Israel. In other words, and, and here's, if you don't understand any of that, if you, here's the bottom line that's the really important takeaway. In all this accommodating that Paul's doing, he's never engaging in sin, and he's never accommodating sin. He's never violating God's law of love as expressed in the law of Christ. He's not saying, to the immoral, I become immoral, that I may win the immoral. To the hypocritical, I become hypocritical, that I may win the hypocritical. That's not what he's doing. He was bound by the law of Christ. But everywhere else, everywhere else, he was happy to flex. To the weak, he becomes weak. In chapter 8, he says, if your brother can't eat meat sacrificed to, other, to idols, you abstain for his sake. Paul has become all things to all men. He lays down every freedom so that he might become the servant of as many people as possible so that he might save as many people as possible, that God might save them through him. In other words, Paul is being very strategic with his rights. He's so eager to see sinners saved that he has developed a sort of chameleon-like ability to, to drop his own skin and adopt the preferences of the people around them on a dime so that he has the opportunity to win them to Christ. And of course, we have to remember that Paul's evangelism model here, it didn't originate with him. He didn't come up with this out of some apostolic brainstorm session. Paul had seen this, and we've seen this in our Savior, 
Jesus Christ. Jesus was rich beyond all splendor. Jesus was the radiance of God's glory, light of light, very God of very God. And his descent into utter humiliation began when he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And that descent from light of light down into darkness hit rock bottom at the cross. And all along the way, every moment of every day, Jesus was laying aside his rights, laying aside his rights. You know, Jesus was still worthy of being unceasingly worshipped by the heavenly angels, even when he walked on this dusty earth. It would have been appropriate for him. It would have been right for him during his earthly ministry to be surrounded constantly by the angels, by the cherubim and seraphim crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That would have been appropriate. That would have been fitting for Jesus. But he laid aside that right. And instead he was surrounded by dirty, needy people many of whom were only interested in him for the power that he could give them, for the tricks they wanted him to do for them. They misunderstood him. They spoke ill of him. Eventually, they killed him. It would be proper for Jesus, the only faithful, obedient man, to enjoy the unbroken favor of God, unstained as he was by sin, but instead... He said, not my will, but yours be done. He went to the cross. He bore the nails. He descended into the utter darkness of God's wrath. Why did Jesus give up his rights? Why did he take upon himself this voluntary humiliation and servitude? So that he might win some. So that he might win you brothers and sisters. His death removed the sin of his people and his life won resurrection for his people. He gave up his life for the many so that the many might be saved. And Paul, commissioned by that Savior to preach that gospel, is saying, I'm walking on that same path of ministry. That was Jesus' path. That's my path. It's the path I must follow because it's the path my Savior walked on. And it's a path he's calling the Corinthians to walk on too. Look at verses 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So so Paul uses this analogy of a race to describe the Christian life. The, The city of Corinth hosted the Ismian Games, which I can almost say, uh, and it's a sister event to the Olympic Games. So these people knew what it looked like to run a race to win. 
And he says that the Corinthians should similarly live their lives to win. Not a, not a crown of leaves that will wither in a few days, but to win the imperishable crown, the crown of eternal life. Now, now please note here that the crown is a metaphor for eternal life. It, it's not some additional reward for super-Christians. It's the goal of the race for everyone. And likewise, the danger of being disqualified from the race in 27 is not some, some less-than-ideal state for, for lesser Christians. But to be disqualified is to fail in the Christian life. It's to prove that you were never a believer, to fall away. So when Paul tells them to run, that you may obtain the imperishable crown, he's saying, keep persevering in the faith. Keep trusting in Jesus. Keep fighting the good fight of faith. And in order to do that, Paul says he exercises self-control like an athlete. He works hard. He disciplines his body he, so that he presses forward in the faith. Now, you have to be careful here. It's easy to hear all this talk about self-discipline. It's easy to take that out of context and kind of run with it. it it's easy to hear this and think, that's right, I need more discipline. I need to be a better organizer. I need a better task app on my phone. I need to exercise more. I need to limit the amount of television that I'm watching. And those are all could be good things. But that's not the kind of self-discipline that Paul has in mind. It's a more fundamental discipline required to do what he's just talked about in verses 19 and 23. It's the discipline that enables you to lay down your rights, your freedoms for the sake of the gospel. It's the hard work of keeping your personal values so tethered to the gospel that you're able to adjust and accommodate freely to promote the gospel. So Paul says, I'm like an Olympic athlete flexing my freedoms in order to win others. And when he tells the Corinthians to run the race to win, he's telling them to adopt that same kind of self-discipline, to work at holding their rights loosely. And it's not an, ap an optional add-on to the Christian life. Paul says, this is what you, you have to do if you're going to win the race of the Christian life. Hold all of your rights loosely so that the gospel is advanced and more are one to Christ. So that's the defense of Paul's rights. And that's his reasoning for giving up his rights. But what does that have to do with you? What does that have to do with us? How do we apply Paul's example and his call to the Corinthians to run the race? First, this. You must believe that surrendering your rights is necessary for the Christian life. You've got to believe that. I said that briefly, but I just want to put a sharper point on it. There's not a basic version of Christianity where you don't have to let go of your rights and a premium, more advanced version of Christianity where you can, where you can hang on to your rights. Now, this, is, this is the self-denial that's essential to running the race. Jesus said it this way. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. That's Mark 8, 34 and 35. Now, Paul and Jesus are not saying that you earn eternal life by surrendering your, your rights or that self-denial, denying yourself is the basis for eternal life. No, eternal life has only been ever secured through one sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus. Eternal life is blood bought by Christ alone and received by faith alone. But the faith that embraces Jesus Christ for salvation, embraces him fully. It, it surrenders everything to him and to his mission. 
There can be no part of your life that's withheld from him. So think, brothers and sisters, think. Think about the big picture of your life. Are there areas that you are tempted to make off limits for the advance of the gospel? Are there rights in your hands that you cannot let go of? Things that you're not willing to accommodate for the sake of winning others. Are you willing to leverage your time both in what's planned and what's spontaneous for Jesus' sake? What about your finances? Is it, is it just 10% that belongs to Jesus? Or is the whole thing on the table? What about your home? Is that your castle? Or are you willing to leverage your home for hospitality and for others to come in and hear the gospel of Christ? Now, now all those things I've just said could be nuanced, right? I could give you caveats about what's reasonable and what's responsible, but I just don't think that's where the danger lives for most of us in America and in the Western world. We're constantly bombarded by commercials that tell us to please ourselves and to live safe lives and to do what makes us happy, right? That's just the air we breathe 24-7. So we are bombarded by the call to please ourselves. We're, we're quick to protect our rights. And I'm telling you, there's great danger there, far greater than being too free with what we own, what we have with our lives. So I'm calling on you to assess your life and offer it, offer all of it afresh as a living sacrifice to God through Christ. This is an essential, necessary outworking of your faith in Christ. Now, I would guess that there are some of you here who, who are not Christians. You've not come to Jesus Christ in faith. You've not repented of your sins. You're not trusting in him with any part of your life. So, so the idea of sacrificing your freedoms for the sake of winning others, it's, it's not even on your radar. Here's what I'd ask you to consider. If you're here and you're aware, I'm not a Christian. My guess is that you are willing to make sacrifices for something. You are in a race to achieve something. What is it? What, what, are, what is your life aimed at? Is there a certain level of education you want? Is there a certain amount of money that you want to make? Are you giving up things for the sake of having a peaceful family or so that your kids will do well or so that your parents will be cared for? Are you just trying to live a quiet life or a comfortable life? Are you trying to win the approval of your classmates or of the other moms in your neighborhood or the other members of your board? What's the prize? What's the thing that your life is aimed at? What, what gets you out of bed in the morning and gets you running? Now, I want to tell you what I think you probably already know deep down, which is that none of those things, none of those things will last. Not a one. And I don't just mean that money runs out or that approval fades or that pleasure passes, although that's certainly true. I mean that even if those things last your whole life, even if you have money as much as you could want your entire life, your life ends. Death comes. And when you die, all those prizes will be gone. They're perishable. They have a shelf life. When you die, they don't go with you. And so since you've spent your life for your own sake, promoting your own things, ignoring the God who made you and the son who died for sinners, since you've rebelled against God 
you will spend an eternity reaping what you've sown. And the wages, the reward for that is the lake of fire. So it it may seem wise to you right now to run for your own sake, but you will lose. You'll lose forever. But it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus, the beloved son of the father, came, lived, died, rose to save to save selfish sinners. He bought it for us through his sacrifice. And he calls you right now to turn away from your sin, to turn away from whatever it is you're pursuing instead of him, to let go of that and instead turn to Jesus Christ. You can do that right now. He's calling you to do that. Now, again, to those of us who have embraced him, I already asked you to consider at a 10,000 foot level, what rights and freedoms are you clinging to? But now I want you to think more practically about leveraging all those things so that you might become all things to all people and win some. I think it's really easy for us to punt on this. We listen to what Paul is saying and we think, yeah, well, you know, Paul was a cross-cultural missionary and I live here and I've lived here my whole life or I've lived in this kind of a place my whole life. So, I mean, really, what do I need to do here? But you know as well as I do, you you can live next door to somebody your whole life and have very different preferences and customs from the people next door, right? We're surrounded by people who think differently than us in a lot of ways. So let's not excuse ourselves from this. Think think hard about what it's going to take for you to become all things to all people in order to win some here in Medfield and in your circles, in your family, and your friends beyond. This can be played out in a lot of different ways, but let me just try to sketch out some suggestions for you so you know kind of what I'm talking about. You need to be willing to sacrifice your preferred schedule. Sure, you'd prefer to go to bed early in the evening, but maybe there's that one unsaved adult child of yours or that one friend from college who will only call you at night. So you take that call. You make that call so that you have the opportunity to win that person to Christ. Or your lost neighbor He only ever wants to shoot the breeze with you when you're heading out the door to something else, right? You're trying to get from point A to point B, and now he wants to talk. And you've got to be willing to sacrifice your preferred timetable to interact with that guy. You need to be willing to surrender your preferred way of doing things. Sure, it would be easier to do the housework by yourself, but you let your kids or your grandkids help because as You work with them and beside them. Now you have the opportunity to talk to them about the gospel of Christ. You have the opportunity to win them because they're there with you, even though it's going to take twice as long or longer. You need to be willing to sacrifice doing things you like in order to spend time doing things another might like. You're not the outdoorsy type. You'd rather be inside, fully air-conditioned, all of that. But the only way you can connect with this one guy from work is if you go with him on this hike he's been talking about. So you go on the hike. Or, or you know another mom from the fall play date who invites you to go on a picnic with her and her kids. And, and you're just not the picnic family. That's just not your vibe. But you go on the picnic because it's going to give you a chance to get to know that mom and win her and her family to Christ. Now, if you're really thinking this through, it's going to be painful. It's painful to me because suddenly you see areas in your life where you are presently very hesitant to lay down your rights to win, other, win others. But where you find that, where your fist is closed tightly, I'm calling on you to repent, to let go, to free yourself, to serve others for the gospel's sake. And once we've gotten our minds right, once we've gotten completely open 
hands, this process can actually become fun. Because now we're not thinking, what do I have to give up? But what can I give up for the sake of the gospel? You're thinking, how can I rearrange my life? How can I lay things down so that I'm better equipped to win? And that's fun. Because now you're thinking like a runner who wants to win. So think about your circle. Think about your friends. Think about your grown children. Think about your young children. Think about the guy down the hall at work or the mom that you know down the street and ask this question. How can I accommodate them? How can I deny myself to have an opportunity to win them? What possible impediments can I remove? Because we do want to win. We want to use our rights rightly, empowered by the Spirit, rooted in the sacrifice of our Savior. We want to follow him on the path of self-denial so that we might win the race and bring with us as many as possible. Would you pray with me?